0: All right well, there's no non awkward way to get this thing started, so I'm just going to start and welcome to modern American legal theory I'm Christian Turner, and this is the first audio download for the class. probably have uh for the most part two of these a week, occasionally more and occasionally they'll be a little bit longer uh, when I need to do some some background explanation there are a few readings where I need to to give a little bit more, but generally these are going to be to uh for you to listen to after you've done each of the readings. So in this one, I'm going to talk about Fuller's Spelunkian Explorers. And so if you haven't read it yet, you should probably, you know, you should stop this, read it first, and then listen. Because what I'm going to be doing here is providing some explanation, maybe a little bit of outlining for some of the readings. Um, Mostly, though, I'm going to be asking questions for you to think about in advance of our online meetings. Okay, so, well, let's just get started. All right, so this is the first of this semester's goofy sound effects for these audio downloads. We are trapped in a cave, which is the premise for Lon Fuller's famous article, Case of the Spelunkian Explorers. We have some explorers who resorted to cannibalism after being trapped in a cave and and told that it would take a long time to get out, longer than their food supplies would last and longer than they could survive without food. So let's just start with the facts. And by that, I mean what is it about this case that makes it difficult? What what facts make it difficult? Let's forget the law for a second. When you think back to your reading of it, and you may want to go back to the beginning of the article to take a look, you know, Fuller starts this theoretical piece by richly describing the facts of the story that he's made up. And there are lots of little details thrown in there that are brought out by one judge or another. And, and so if you can reflect on just what, what are some of the facts that make this, that make this case harder? And, what kinds of facts would make it easier? Let me just give you a few examples. We are told that these are amateur explorers. Does that somehow make the whole endeavor of cave exploration that they were engaged in, does that make it less socially valuable? Does that matter? Uh, we were told that it's an expensive rescue. Ten workmen were killed, as you know, trying to save them. As, uh, and there are fewer than ten explorers who were trapped. Huge sums of money were expended. We were told about doctors' opinions that there was little possibility of survival. Not no possibility, interestingly, but but very little possibility of survival. And all of these other people on the outside refused when asked through their little radio, you know, what should we do? Should we draw lots? Uh, the doctors refused. There were priests refused. There were no judge rescuers on hand who could venture a legal opinion. And we're told that <laughs> the, the person who was killed, Wetmore, it was Wetmore's idea to draw lots and to eat one of their number to begin with. And he's the one who ended up withdrawing at the last minute, another little fact, but then agreeing that the procedure by which they would draw lots was fair. And his execution and consumption was carried out in accordance with those procedures. Okay, so those are some of the facts. And then we also, of course, have our procedural. If we were did this like a regular law school class, I'd be asking, oh, what are the facts of the case? And and then what is the procedural history? And the procedural history is is also kind of interesting. So let's maybe keep treating this like a regular case that we'd read in law school. So what is the procedural history? Well, we're on appeal from a trial court verdict. And this seems to be the court of last resort. So the Supreme Court doesn't seem like there's an intermediate appellate opinion. And some interesting things happen in the trial court. Uh, The jury in particular... They didn't want to say that this guy was guilty of murder or that these explorers were guilty of murder. They wanted to – they were happy to find the facts and to conclude and give the judge their conclusions about what happened. And then they wanted to pass to the judge the determination whether under those facts these explorers were guilty of murder, guilty of violating the law. And, and the judge allowed this and, and they did this and the judge concluded that they were guilty – based on the facts as related in the in the article and sentenced them to death by hanging which apparently uh, the statute makes no room for any other punishment if guilt is found and then something else interesting happened the the jury members and the trial judge appeal to the chief executive the president if you like or governor for clemency to commute the sentence to 6 months so while we can't find a bit of text in the law that says that the court has the authority, just to give any sense it likes, at least this is the conclusion, uh, the chief executive clearly does have that authority. Somehow, we're not told exactly the source of that authority. And the everyone involved below wants the chief executive to exercise that authority. And that chief executive hasn't done that yet, though. Uh, appears to be waiting on judicial resolution. Okay, so these are that's the procedural history. We know about the facts of the case. And at this point, if, if this were a real case and maybe this were a criminal law class, we'd kind of go into maybe justifications for murder, et cetera, all these other things, and we would talk about the substance of of criminal law. Of course, that's not Fuller's point in, in writing the article. Instead, he's trying to get at some more basic questions about what law is and how we know what the law is. And those are the kinds of questions we're going to be asking in this class, always with the goal, as is the goal here, to understand better what we're doing when we do law So when it seems obvious to you that the outcome of a case should be X or that maybe these explorers should go free or maybe they should be guilty but the chief executive should give them clemency, whatever your opinion is, like why, really why do you have that opinion? Why do you have that belief or that attitude toward the law? Is it something in the law itself? Is it something external to the law? Could other people have different attitudes? What if we don't agree as these judges don't agree? Okay, so first... What exactly are these judges disagreeing about? Is it the law itself? Is it the meaning of a specific law? Is it what counts as law? Is it what the judicial role is? What, what is the source of their disagreement? Why, why do people ever disagree about what the law is? And what are they doing when they disagree? So my specific question here is, is what exactly are the judges disagreeing about? You know, They certainly spend a lot of words saying what, they, what each of them thinks. But, but why is it that they're disagreeing? What, what are they disagreeing about? Second, maybe this really should be the first one, but uh, think about it in any order that you like. Which opinion do you find the most persuasive, and and why? I mean, really why? Ask yourself that. So you're reading all of these, and I'm sure you're going to have different attitudes toward each. You know, some of them will, you'll find more harmonious than others, and and you'll say, yeah, that sounds right to me. What I want you to do, and we'll see Holmes in the, in the next reading— uh, really puts an exclamation point on this. I want you to ask yourself why. I want you to get to the bottom of why that opinion seems more correct to you than another opinion. So which opinion, opinion do you find the most persuasive and what is it about that opinion that persuades you? And we can go a step further and ask, what does it mean to be persuasive in law, and in particular here? Like, When we say that this is a, a more persuasive opinion, what do we mean by that? Well, oh, I think I'll leave that one there until our discussion. Okay, next next question. Is there a right answer here? Is there a sense in which one of these judges is right? What 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 does it mean to say someone's right or wrong? And if not, if if there isn't a right answer, what does that really say about this whole law thing that we're studying? What 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 is law and what what, what are we learning how to do if there isn't a right answer to this question? Next question. Is there a difference between describing the law as an outsider? This is if you're an outsider to a system and you're describing that system's law from kind of the external point of view. Is there a difference between that and being a participant or an insider in the governed society? and talking about law or experiencing law. So I want you to think about that distinction. You know, we're reading this uh, Spelunkian Explorers piece almost as though we were kind of like space aliens. You know, we're looking down on this weird society which has been through these upheavals that we read about in one of the opinions, and, and we're trying to figure out, well, you know, what should the law be here? And we're having opinions about it. Is it different from the external point of view than it is from the internal point of view? Finally. And this is important, and really the the thing that we'll talk about a lot at our first meeting. That's the connection between thinking theoretically, using our imaginations to think about the connections between things. Uh, it, it, we want to think about the connection between that, between between thinking theoretically and practice. If you were going to write a brief, suppose that you could appeal this case. know, this seems to be the court of last resort, but suppose it were just an intermediate court and we were going to appeal to a supreme court how would you go about writing a brief you know what would you say how how would you know what to say all right so i probably haven't helped you very much yet as a as a teacher i've been just asking you questions and 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 hoping that you will do some thinking before our, our meeting on on some of these questions but i do want to leave you with maybe a the briefest of outlines of the five opinions just to kind of go through and make sure we're on the same page about the basic argument uh, in each. You probably have a little bit, deja vu is the wrong word, but a lot of recognition of the kinds of moves that each of these judges is making. You know, you've seen variants of this. And and this this article was written a long time ago, but, you know, a lot of this sounds like Scalia versus Breyer, you know, the kind of things that you uh, will read in U.S. reports today. Let's look at each of these, though, for not so much who's right and, and which Sounds more like a judge that you agree with, and 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 try to see the the basis for each of these opinions. So we we start off with Truepenny, Judge Truepenny, who seems to be very concerned with formalism and roles. In other words, he takes a very formal approach to what law is. The language of our statute is well known. He says it permits of no exception that's applicable to this case. However sympathetic we might be, you know, that sounds like an argument. I know that you've heard before. I want you to think about what kind of argument that is. What what reason? has true penny given for the result uh, that he uh, advocates for the case, which is we have to affirm the conviction and then hope that the chief executive kind of does the right thing, although that's not our role to make that decision ourselves. He says, look, if the chief executive grants clemency here, and let me just read you this quote, if this is done, then justice will be accomplished without impairing either the letter or spirit of our statutes and without offering any encouragement for the disregard of law. So, kind of interesting that there could be a difference between the law and justice. There can be a difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And True Penny has this almost like Rube Goldberg idea of how to achieve all three. That's, you know, we'll uphold the letter of the law, and in so doing, Uphold the spirit of the law and yet will still achieve justice because someone else will do something they have the power to do. What do you guys think of this i'm I'll be curious to hear your your views. Okay, next we have Foster, who doesn't really believe in a distinction between law and morality. This is one of the big themes that we're going to be hitting in this class, and that's the connection between law and morality, and it's one of the major axes of disagreement among legal philosophers and judges so foster believes that they're really one and the same law and morality and in fact these explorers are not innocent because they're excused from the law or there's some exception i think it goes further than that it's that you know, as he says the law declares them innocent they just haven't violated it and that's because law as he says rests on unstated premises that that the people to whom it applies can coexist under it and when those underlying premises are not satisfied then the the kind of precondition for law's application isn't there and and that that kind of precondition is is always needed but we just never talk about it and and he said why why do we never talk about it why do we never say that there are kind of hidden premises behind the law well he says like the air we breathe it so pervades our environment that we forget that it exists until we are suddenly deprived of it that's why we don't talk about it because In everyday life, we just kind of assume that all the conditions are there that make the application of the law reasonable. It's the weird case, the hard case, where our intuition says, like this one, our intuition says, boy, it doesn't, yeah, I know the law says X, but that doesn't seem right. And what Judge Foster is saying is that the reason for that intuition is that we always have an intuition that law is kind of, conditional it's contingent on the existence of underlying premises about society here those premises among which is that people don't ordinarily need to eat each other to survive just weren't there there were different premises and these explorers reached a different compact kind of suitable to their situation among one another faced with a completely different world they created law for themselves for their world uh, that made sense and the reason that our law, our ordinary law, the ones of the statutes and of the common law, the reason those laws apply, the reason we're comfortable applying them, is that they apply in a context that is familiar. They apply in a context that makes sense. And here, it wouldn't make sense to apply the ordinary kind of above-ground rules. But Foster also has a second ground that he finds kind of implicit in what it means to be an agent involved in making and enforcing law. And that's that when you apply the, the law to uh, to people in society, you do so with an eye toward the purposes of those laws. And I'm sure you've seen this kind of debate in law school before between textualism and purposivism or original intent versus kind of uh, uh, living constitutionalism. Uh, put all that to the side for one second and and think about Foster's argument here. His argument is not just that purposivism is better because it reaches better results, but he says that it's basically implicit in empowering intelligent agents. It, it's what people mean when they give other people authority to do things. You know, why else would you empower them to do something unless you had some purpose toward that empowerment? Okay, so we've got Judge True Penny, the formalist. The law is what it is. It says what it says, and we do what we have the power to do. We have Judge Foster who believes that law doesn't even make sense, it's not even coherent without considering morality because morality is what gives the law its force. It's what gives it its legitimacy. And uh, law and morality are kind of inseparable. And he has kind of two different ways of looking at that. Now we go to Judge Tadding. And, you know, how would you describe Judge Tadding's outlook on law? He seems not to want to decide anything at all here, at least in this case. And he has this existential crisis going on where he's like, you know, basically, you know, what is the law? Everywhere I look, I see two answers and I don't see a reason to choose between A and B. I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this as a law student where you, you read a case and uh, maybe the majority opinion sounds totally convincing and then you read the dissent and you're like, well, that sounds totally convincing. Maybe you're at the kind of jaded part of your law school experience where you say, well, there is no answer. It's just they're just arguments. Does law, existing law in the form of statutes or the common law or the Constitution, do those sources provide no guidance? Do they pro- do they provide uh, no constraining force? If that's the case, then is judging the same as tyranny? Uh, are there is there such a thing as hard cases where there is relatively more discretion and easy cases where there is less? Is is that right, or is there only the appearance of less discretion because they're easy cases. And so judges don't disagree as much. So, so what is the constraining power of law? Well, Tadding says, I, I'm, I don't get any guidance from the law here and he's uncomfortable with this. So in, in some ways he's not embracing indeterminacy, but in the face of indeterminacy, he's backing off and saying, I can't be a judge because I have nothing other than my own desires here. My own preferences to guide me. And so I can't possibly do that. I wish the prosecutor, someone who does have discretion, as you guys know, I, I wish that he or she would not have brought the case. Okay, so if you're keeping count, we've got formalism, we've got natural law, we have the indeterminacy crisis, and our last two judges, Keen and Handy, represent kind of two other theoretical approaches to law. Keen, positivism, the idea that law is made and that different people in the law have roles. So there's kind of a lot in common with formalism in a way, but we'll get back to that. And finally, Handy, Judge Handy, the pragmatist. And I think I'm not going to go into um, these a lot here, um, especially Keane, the positivist. We'll talk a little bit more about that at our at our meeting. Let me just say something about Handy. So So Judge Handy writes some things that you probably would find pretty surprising if they were in the pages of U.S. Reports an honest citation of public opinion as a reason to decide a case. It's not so surprising, I guess, that he embraces practical wisdom as the guide, pragmatism as the guide to deciding cases. Judges like Posner and others have have done that. But what is surprising is he cites not only public opinion and says that's a reason to, to do something in this case, but that he talks about the chief executive's Likelihood of commuting the sentence, and saying that his basically wife's niece is a friend of the secretary, et cetera, and doesn't like that's something you would never see in an opinion for sure. But I, I want you to think about whether considerations like that and considerations of public opinion, even if they don't appear in a case, do you think judges are are thinking about those kinds of things? Do, do all of their reasons for deciding cases make it into the pages of U.S. Reports or, or F Third? Um, Probably not, right? Is this an accurate description of what a lot of judges do? And if so, do you agree with that? Is it inevitable? Is it wrong? All right, so all I'm asking you guys to have uh, are some opinions about these various approaches. You know, which do you favor? And then ask yourself really why. Why do you favor that approach? So get to the bottom of it. And I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say.